Beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 13. And um, we're going to begin in verse 8 this morning. We're going to read through to the end of this chapter. But we are not going to preach through verses 8 through 14. Instead, we're going to preach through verses 8 through 10 this morning as we look at the essential nature, the, the, the essential necessity for love. For love within the body and for love to those outside the body. The calling for us as Christians to be a people whose lives are defined by love. So let's stand together and we'll start in verse 8. This is the Word of God. We'll read all the way again through verse 14. But then we'll pray and we'll begin to look at this text this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes... Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I am just exceedingly grateful to you for your word. And I'm grateful, Lord God, that not only do you save us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you instruct us in, 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 in what the manner of our new life in Christ should be. You don't leave us to, to guess and to make assumptions, but you clearly define for us how it is that we ought to walk in order to bring glory to your name, in order to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in order, Father, to, to, to have you know, favor with and, and gain the ability to be heard in this world by lost sinners. I thank you, Lord God, for your great grace. I thank you for the way that, Father, you have determined to pursue and to make your own those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. I'm grateful, Lord God, for the, the full efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ by which our sins are forever forgiven. And I am grateful for the great gift of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, God in us, in order to conform us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm praying, Lord God, this morning, that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I would preach words that would be pleasing in your ears. And Father God, a blessing to this congregation here for those who are in Christ. And Father God, words that would, you know, through which those who are lost would hear the voice of Christ. And Father, they would come to repentance and faith. I'm, I'm praying that you will move here mightily and powerfully. Father, not only for, um, you know, for the good of our souls, but for the praise of your name. For the praise of your name. Lord, I pray, just as Aaron did, I'm, I'm, my heart is in lockstep here. 
that, Lord, these words would not just rest weightlessly upon us. Oh, we've heard about love before. We know about love. But rather, Lord God, that they would penetrate our hearts. Penetrate my heart. That it would be, you know, these words that we are studying this morning would be more than just mere, you know, biblical knowledge that we can check off. But it would be truth that transforms our souls. So I pray you come and meet with us and be our teacher, be our instructor. Train us in your truth this day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, we are, you know, we are continuing to look this morning at the ethical demands of what it means to be a Christian, right? At the ethical demands of being a Christian, how we are to live in light of the gospel, how we are to live in light of the reality that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's what this is about. I want us to remember again, and I can't say this enough, right? Paul has already spent 11 chapters in Romans describing to us in detail, explaining in detail the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He's begun with the the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God. And he's talked then about our sinfulness, our rebellion, our rejection of God, the the expansiveness of our law-breaking and the condemnation that we've rightly earned, right? Right? He's described that by nature we are under the wrath of God. We're helpless to achieve a right standing with Him. And we have no power to make atonement for our many sins. We are truly helpless in ourselves. But then praise God. He explains to us what God, the holy God in His grace, has done to rescue sinners like us from His own wrath. How he has sent his son. And when I say this, I want you to hear this. Not just like, I know the gospel. No, listen to this. He sent his son. The Holy One. The object of eternal worship in heaven. He sent his son. To stand in the sinner's place. To assume our place. To take to himself human flesh... And live a life of perfect obedience and of perfect righteousness before the face of God. A life that we have not lived. A life that we would never live. A life that we did not want to live. He sent Him to bear on the cross as our substitute the wrath of God against our many sins. Our innumerable sins to offer his life as a sacrifice for our rescue he then explained he's explained that the gospel is a gift of grace and and that what we must do in order to receive you know that rescue and salvation that christ has accomplished what we desperately need is to repent of our sins and believe on the lord jesus christ to repent of our sins and to trust in him as savior and as lord because salvation can never be by human works it can't be because we've got no power to do good works in ourselves and so that is why While we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, Christ has reconciled us to God. 
And we lay hold of that salvation by faith. And it's offered to us sheerly out of grace and love. And then Paul spent time explaining to us the great wonders of the salvation that we've received, right? How we've been mysteriously united in Christ, united to Christ. It is death and his resurrection. How our old man is now dead. And how we've been raised to walk in the newness of life. How we are to consider ourselves, right, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. How sin no longer has dominion over us. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've been adopted into the family of God. We can call God Abba, Father, right? The promise that just as God has already worked in our lives, loving us before the foundation of the world and predestining us to be saved and be conformed to the image of His Son and calling us unto salvation and making us to be justified before Him in Christ, He will also bring our salvation to its full completion. Amen. Praise God for that. We we will reign with Him in glory. Those who are in Christ by faith, listen, we cannot lose our salvation. Nobody can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, right? Now here's the thing. And this is what we've got to understand in our theologically murky age. Salvation is indeed a glorious gift of God's grace. It is indeed something that we could never earn at all. There's no way that we can merit salvation. That is absolutely true. But, but, as Paul is explaining to us, beginning here in in chapter 12 of Romans, as Paul explains, being a Christian involves ethical demands on our lives, right? We're not antinomians. We're not just, you know, we're not people that receive grace and then use grace as a license to sin. Well, God's job is to forgive me so I can just live however I want to. I ask God for forgiveness. All done. No wrong. That's not the teaching of Scripture. If you've really been born again by the Holy Spirit, if you really are a new creature in Christ, right, if I am, then being a Christian involves ethical demands on our lives. There are marks of being a true Christian. There are evidences of being someone who's truly in Christ. If we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and brought from death to life, if we've been made alive to God in Christ, then listen, true spiritual living ought to follow. Sanctification must follow. Are you with me? True salvation is always followed by increasing conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. And so... In Romans chapter 12 and extending through the middle of of Romans chapter 15, Paul is describing for us what a Christian's life is to look like. The outworking of that authentic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, right? We're not our own anymore. We've been bought with a price. And so therefore, in light of the mercies of God, in light of the gospel, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, which is holy and acceptable to God as an act of spiritual worship, right? No longer are we to be like those in the world, to live like those in the world, to have our lives defined by the character and the, and the lifestyle of those who are in the world and not in Christ. We're to be transformed for the renewal of our minds, right? By the word of God applied to our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's been laying out for us these ethical demands, right? 
He's been given us a number of commands, ranging from how we're to love God, to, to how we're to interact with other believers, to how we are to interact with people in this world, including our enemies. And then, as we saw last week, how it is that we are to relate to the governing authorities. And now, in this text that we're looking at this morning, Paul is coming to sort of a mini-climax in the middle of this ethical section of Romans. And he's telling us that as Christians, the overarching and the essential metric and measure of our lives is that of love. If we've been truly redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are to love as Christ loves. That should be the defining characteristic of our lives. And we ought to give it a lot more thought than we normally do. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. A heart of hatred and vindictiveness, a heart that is out for itself alone, a heart that is desiring only its own satisfaction and its own desires is not the heart of one who has been transformed by Jesus Christ. It's the heart, rather, of a worldling. It's the heart of one who has rejected the authority and the commands and the... the, sovereignty of the Lord God. It's one that has refused to acknowledge the love and the grace of God. It's a life that's out for itself. And here's why that is such a terrible thing. And especially among those who claim to be Christians. When there are those who claim to be believers in Christ and they are motivated not by love for God or love for others, but rather love for themselves, they bring reproach They bring damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They make a mockery of what God has done through Christ to save us. It demonstrates an absolute ignorance of the love that, that, that drew salvation's plan. It wars against unity and love among the people of God and it besmirches and it makes a mockery of the gospel before those who don't know Christ. Think about it. If, if, if Christians act just like everybody else in the world, if we're all self-motivated, right? Oh, but we love Jesus and we go to church on Sundays and oh, I post, you know, verses on Instagram and buddy, I, I am just, I, I read the Bible and listen, if, if, that's, if, if that's the extent of, our, of the Christian transformation and our lives are marked by self-interest, why would we ever expect someone not in Christ to even give two seconds of attention to our proclamation of the gospel? Are you with me? Well, you're no different than I am. And if being a Christian means you just lose your Sunday mornings, and if you're really religious, your Wednesday nights, well, I got more important things to do at those times than, you know, sit around with a bunch of pretenders. So this is serious business. What we're looking at today is really important. 
Our lives as Christians, it's to be defined by love. Defined by an earnest desire to lay down our lives for the good of other people. In fact, it's our enduring debt. It's our enduring debt. Look, look again at Paul's words in verse, verse 8. Look at what he says here. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now here's the deal, okay? I want to make sure we understand this. Paul's not giving us a financial lesson here, okay? There are some preachers that sever the entire first half of this verse from the verse, and then they turn it into like a Dave Ramsey, don't ever be in debt, you know, Christian, you know, financial living seminar. But to do that is to entirely miss the point. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not standing up here and advocating for debt. I don't think you should go into debt unnecessarily. I'm not saying, you know, especially spurious debt, you know, when you, when you purchase things that have no worth at all. I'm not saying that. But, but if, if you, if you look at this verse and, and, and the thing you go to is now Christians shouldn't be in debt, you're missing it all. The point that Paul is making here, and especially what he said, considering, you know, what he, verse 7, when he talks about owing taxes and, and owing revenue and paying those things, right? What he's getting at is this. He's saying, look, you know, there are some obligations that as a Christian you can fulfill, that you can do it, it's one and done, and you're finished, right? There are some obligations that you can fulfill. Like, look, when I pay income taxes, I don't pay income taxes all year long. I mean, they accrue all year long, but I write the check one time, right? And so the idea is there are some things that you can fulfill, paying taxes and revenues, showing honor and respect to those whom they are due. But, he's, but what he's getting at is this, that loving other people is a debt that we can never fully and finally discharge. Loving other people is something we can never fully and finally discharge. We're never going to get to the point. Never, none of us will ever get to the point where we can say, you know what, I have loved other people enough. I've loved my spouse enough. I've loved my kids enough. You know what? I've loved my friends enough. I've loved other people enough. I have loved others enough. I'm done. We can't ever get to that point because that point doesn't exist for us. A life of love, listen to me, a life of ongoing love, a life of expressed love is part and parcel of a life in Christ. You with me? Like it's the very core of what it means to be a Christian. It's at the heart of what it means to walk as Christ walked. Right? Paul said to the Ephesians over in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1, 1 and 2, he said, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the idea is, look, if you're a Christian, the entirety of your life is to be lived in the sphere of love. Well, what does that mean? Right? Because here's the deal. We live in a world, right? We know this, that has redefined and disparaged and denigrated the word love. We've, they've taken the word love and treated it like it's a, like it's a piece of plastic and just twisted it and deformed it all together, right? That's what the world has done. We've taken love and we've turned it into a feeling or emotion. It's just feeling and emotion, you know, because you can fall into love and you can fall out of love and you have no control over that at all. Right? We use, they've used love, we've turned love into a cover for permissiveness. 
and for approval of all sorts of immorality, right? I mean, to be loving means you just keep your mouth shut and you be approving and accepting of all things and of everything because that's what it means to be loving. It means to have no backbone, have no spine, have no real concern for righteousness. It just means have a warm feeling towards everyone, right? We've turned love into a weapon to manipulate other people in order to gain from them what we want. We've made love into a self-oriented desire that terminates on ourselves. The whole, you know, I really love you because of the way you make me feel. That's garbage. But that's, that's, all the Hallmark cards say that, right, right. I love you because you make me feel good about myself. Well, that's not love. That's the language of a mercenary. The concept of love in our society is confused and it's corrupted. And therefore, we need to give some biblical definition to that word. And there might be no more concise definition. There may be no more concise definition of love than what we read from the apostle of love, John, when he writes in his first letter... 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, these words. He writes this. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And what do we see here in this description of love? Well, what we see when we think about it and we really track through those verses is that love is something that's sincere and it's genuine. That it's not just a feeling, it's something that leads to action. That it's selfless, right? That it is sacrificial, And that it is serving. I'm going to say this again. Love is sincere and genuine. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. It's selfless, it's sacrificial, and it's serving. And you know what? It's not predicated on what you can get from the other person. You hearing me? It's not predicated on what you can get from somebody else. We didn't love God when he made his love manifest to us. And that he loved us anyway. Beloved, real love is more than emotion. It's action taken for the good of another person. And while love should involve our emotions, I'm not saying that you walk around being an automaton, you know, a robot, robotically doing, you know, the things that are supposed to be loving. That's not what I'm saying. It should involve your emotions. But at its core, it's not a feeling. It's a commitment that results in action. That's biblical love. It's a commitment that we make to sacrifice of ourselves in order to seek the highest good of somebody else. It's a dying to ourselves, a dying to our assumed rights, a dying to, you know, our assumed needs in order to meet the real needs of somebody else. Again, it's a commitment that we make to sacrifice of ourselves in order to seek the highest good of the one that is being loved. That's what real love is. It's got to be displayed 
in action. That's, for instance, why the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was describing the character of love for him that we should have as disciples, did not say, you know, if you love me, you will light a votive candle and you will sit in your living room and you will chant to yourself, kumbaya, over and over and over again. And you will light incense in the room to make it smell really good. And you'll have fond thoughts of me. No, Jesus said, what? If you love me, you will do what? You'll keep my commandments. Love is an action. The one who truly loves Christ shows it by active obedience to his commands. It's not just, you know, merely feelings. Again, yes, love involves our emotions. There's no denying that. But love is demonstrated in actions. It's active. It's not passive. Think about when Paul describes love for us. Famous chapter. What is it? Where Paul describes love. 1 Corinthians 13, right? You ever thought about when you're reading through 1 Corinthians 13, how... He speaks there in terms of love in action. Just listen to this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Love's an action, isn't it? Isn't it? You see that? And I want you to notice again with me. Just listen again to what Paul, what John, I mean, says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, after he's talked about the love of God. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? There's an ought there. And in essence, John is just saying the same thing there as Paul says in Romans 13, 8, when he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. He's speaking in terms of oughtness or of debt or of obligation, right? Right? Our love is a debt or an obligation that we owe. We have an enduring debt, Paul says, to love other people. And not just other Christians, which is sometimes, for us, hard enough. Not because of the other person, because of us. Right? It's not just that we're to love Christians, we're to love all people. He goes on to talk about neighbor here in a moment, right? And so that begs this question. How exactly did we incur this debt? I mean, usually we are used to debt being somebody gives you something, you got to pay them back, right? That's where debts come from. Somebody, you know, obligates you. Well, where do we get this debt? To love others. How do we incur it? Well, we incurred it in the same way that Paul did. In the same way that Paul did. Let me explain. Back in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes these words. He says, I am under obligation. Same word for owe, okay? Same word. I owe, I'm a debtor. I'm under obligation. I, I owe the Greeks and the barbarians, you know, and the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am obligated. I am under a debt to, to the Greeks and to the barbarians and to the wise and the foolish. Well, why? What did they ever do for him? Well, nothing. Good anyway. 
He's in debt to him, and he says he pays this debt back by preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they may be saved. And it was costly for him to do so. It was difficult, right, for Paul to do that. But he was compelled by a debt. He was compelled by an obligation because he had received something. What? Grace. As he says back in chapter 1 and verse 5, he had been a recipient of grace and of apostleship. From whom? From the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been a recipient of grace, and so therefore he was in debt, right? And likewise, we are recipients of grace and debtors to all people just like Paul. And the debt that we owe, the debt that we owe is love toward other people, love towards believers and unbelievers, not because of anything that they have done for us. The debt of obligation is because of everything that Christ has done for us when we did not love him. We receive grace. Christ has loved us and given his life for us and taken away all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our condemnation. All of this when we were yet sinners and enemies with God. And as those who have received the love of God in Christ, we are indebted to love others in the same way that we have been loved. Think about it like this. Our debt of love to other people is unlike any other debt that we could possibly have, okay? It's created by something that we've received, grace, right? But it cannot be paid to the one who gave that gift to us. Rather, it's got to be paid to others who were not involved and who do not deserve it. We can't repay Christ for his love and his grace to us, right? Right? Our debt to Christ is infinite. And any attempt to pay him back for his grace to us can only be enabled by his grace in us. And so any attempts to repay the Lord only drives us deeper in debt. Plus, to try to repay Christ for the grace that he has given to us shows you, shows me, that we don't really know the extent and the depth of that grace. We've got no ability to pay that back. Now listen, we can and we do love the Lord in response to his love for us. We should. But we must never think that we can pay him back For his love and for his grace. Because grace is free or it's not grace, right? And yet, in a way, we are indebted to the love of Jesus Christ for the the whole of our salvation. Because out of a heart of love and compassion, he paid the debt that I owed with his precious blood. He gave his own life to ransom me. That I can never repay. And so... I am a debtor to the Lord, but in the Lord's economy of things, since we could never repay him for the debt that we owe, he calls us then to freely love other people as he has freely loved us. That's how we repay it. We owe a debt of love to other people. Not because they've given us anything, but because Christ has graciously given us everything and loved us with his sincere, selfless, sacrificial, and serving love. And so we're to love people in the exact same way. In fact, Paul goes on to say, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What's he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean that by loving other people, we will fulfill the law in the sense of earning salvation for ourselves. We're not Catholics. He's already labored to show us that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everybody who believes, right? 
Rather, the point that he's making is this, is that if we really love others with a biblically defined love by the power, you know, that the Holy Spirit who indwells us supplies, the power that raised Christ from the dead, then we will, in our loving, fulfill the commands of the law. In other words, when we love as we ought to love, our actions and our attitudes will agree with the commands of the law, which is what the word fulfill means. John Murray said, you know, about the word fulfill, that fulfill is a richer term than obey. It means the law has received the full measure of that which it requires. And that means that obedience to the law, love that, that is rooted in our hearts, comes from our heart, comes from a, a spirit that's been reborn by God. That expression of love to God and to others fulfills the law of Christ-likeness. So in other words, love's not left to, you know, to be just undefined and fuzzy in our understanding. It's not left to just be, you know, described by fallen human wisdom. Love needs to be defined and described. Love needs to be explained. Love needs explanation and clarity and direction as to what it means to act in loving ways toward other people. And the moral law and the commandments, Christ's commands and the instructions that we receive through the apostles, they teach us how to love and how to properly express love toward other people. And we need that because of love. Our idea of love is cut free from any definition. You know what happens. It easily dissolves into sentimentality and virtually any course of action can be defended as loving, can it? And that's why Paul gives us these examples from the second table of the Ten Commandments that are not only a part of the Decalogue, but they are woven throughout the ethical commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he says, starting in verse 9. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, we need to understand what Paul's doing here. He's not just giving us a list of commandments so that we just, you know, pass over them quickly. He wants us to think about the implications of these. How is it that by obeying these commands, we actually love? How does that work? Well, consider adultery, right? If you're motivated by love, Paul is saying, you're not going to commit adultery, not, you know, physically, not emotionally, and not mentally. You're not going to do it. You won't do it because it's a sin against God's holiness, You won't do it because it's a sin against other people. It's a sin against your own spouse. It's a sin against the spouse of the one with whom you commit adultery. It is a sin against any children that are in the equation. It's a sin against the sanctity of marriage. It's a sin against the person with whom you are committing the act. It's not love. So don't do it. Oftentimes, the excuse that I have heard is, well... I'm in a loveless marriage, and that person, I love that person, him or her. And they love me back. Let me just stick a gospel pin in that imaginary balloon of garbage. It's simply not true. Someone who commits adultery is not really loving the other person. In reality, they love themselves. 
And they're using that other person to make themselves happy and to fulfill their, quote, felt needs. Moreover, in biblical terms, the person who commits adultery actually hates the person with whom they commit adultery because they're leading that person to participate in a sin that God detests and that brings judgment. Love doesn't do that. Consider murder, right? If you're motivated by love, you're not going to kill somebody else. That seems fairly obvious, doesn't it? Like, we, you know, serial killers are not convicted because they love people a whole bunch. Right? That seems really obvious. Murder is the unjust taking of another person's life. That includes abortion. But what's in view here is not merely the physical act of murder, but rather a heart of, you know, a heart of murder, which is anger and bitterness, right? And, and malice and hostility and slander and hatred and gossip, right? Jesus said that. Clearly, if you're acting in love towards others, you can't participate in a sin like this. If you love other people, you're not going to steal their stuff. I'm hoping my kids still at home are hearing this. If you love somebody else, you won't steal their stuff, including the charger to their iPhone. Convict yourself appropriately. But it's a no-brainer, right? If you love somebody, you don't steal something from them. You don't take what's theirs. You don't defraud somebody of what is rightfully theirs or take from them that with which God has blessed them. That's not what love does. Moreover, he talks about covetousness, right? Of this commandment, John Calvin said this. He said, by these words, the Lord puts, as it were, a tight rein on all our strong desires, which go beyond the limits set by love for others. All the other commandments prohibit committing acts against the rule of love. But this one forbids even conceiving them in the heart. The commandment deals with improper desires in your heart that are invisible to other people that are seen by God, right? It's rooted in discontentment or envy or or being troubled at the good of a neighbor and desiring to possess what's his. Now, why would Paul cite this commandment? Here's why. It's because... Covetousness objectifies people, right? It depersons them. And that is the exact opposite of love. Covetousness reveals a selfish, self-directed, self-magnifying heart, which is the very opposite of love. Now listen, clearly the, 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 the point of the commandments is not just merely to avoid certain unloving actions, right? It's not merely a matter of shall nots. But it's also a matter of encouraging shalls, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in other words, it's not only to show us what love is not, but to lead us to what love is. And love demands, right, more than refraining from adultery. Rather, it demands that we do everything that we can to honor marriage, and to strengthen our neighbor's marriage and to encourage it and help it grow, right? The prohibition against murder means more than just refraining from offing your neighbor, but rather to do everything in order to preserve life or to be forgiving and forbearing or to be gracious and hospitable and peaceable and to speak good of other people and to bless them and to act in kindness and compassion, right? All the commandments that are given to us by the apostles. Not only must we, you know, not steal, 
But rather, we should do honest work with our hands so that we can have something to share with anybody who's in need, right? That's love. We need to be hospitable and gracious. Rather than being covetous, love demands that we rejoice with others' blessings and we be content with what we've been given by God and that we seek to bless our neighbor. To love means that you, and you've heard these, you share, you bear one another's burdens, you share in one another's sorrows, you share in one another's joy. We look for ways to serve other people. We love people when we value them. We love other people when we listen to them. We love other people when we receive, when we receive them, right? We love other people when we care about them and for them. We love other people when we care enough to speak the truth to them. In love, speak the truth of God's righteousness and lead them into that truth. We love people when we graciously confront the sin that's destroying them. We love when we encourage and exhort and recognize others' growth in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We ought to be encouraging one another in Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is when we see Christ's likeness in a brother or sister in Christ, we need to say so. We love when we risk our comfort or our ease, when we see our brother and sister in Christ drifting spiritually, right? Or when we see them in outright sin and we take the initiative and the effort to restore them to Christ rather than just talk about them. And those are just examples, right? There are innumerable ways that we can show love, innumerable ways that we can sacrifice of ourselves for the good of another. But what that requires is this. And I want you to hear me when I say this. Because it's not just you, it's me. If we're going to love like that, it requires that I not be the most important person in my life. I'm going to say that again. To love like that means I not be the most important person in my life. It requires self-denial. It requires constant effort. It requires thought. It requires discernment. It requires me thinking about other people and not just me. How can I best show this person, this person who's valuable because they've been made in the image of God, how can I best show this person the love that I have received from God in Christ? How do I do that? And it means I've got to take the focus of myself in order to love other people as I should. And that's why... Paul says to us that the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some of you smart cookies, you're thinking right now that I just contradicted myself. You don't need to think about yourself, right? You, you, I, you need to take the focus off yourself. But here Paul says you must love your neighbor as, my, as yourself. And so therefore, I've got to concentrate on loving myself. And then only in, then and only then can I love my neighbor as I'm supposed to once I love myself like I should. Right? And we've heard that. Beloved, I'm going to tell you what. That is to turn this entire text on its head. It is. Paul is quoting here Leviticus 19.18 in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ did when he said to the Pharisees, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now listen, I know there are preachers. They have become popular doing this. That there are preachers and pastors who have taken these words and they have twisted them into a call to, quote, love yourself, unquote. The idea being that you got to really work on loving yourself and feeling good about yourself. And that's when you can love other people. That is some of the most ingenious scripture twisting ever in history. Because the point here, beloved, the underlying truth that Moses and Jesus and Paul acknowledge. You realize why I said Moses, Jesus, right? Moses, Leviticus, Jesus, Matthew, Paul here. What they are acknowledging is that people naturally love themselves. We naturally do what pleases us. We naturally do what brings us what we think is happiness and joy. We, we naturally, without much consideration and contemplation, like act in the way that we think most benefits us. We naturally serve ourselves. We naturally seek satisfaction in, in what we believe is good for ourselves. Now, that's not to say that no one ever feels negatively about themselves. They do. Rather, the point is, is that human beings instinctively act to preserve their own self-interest, don't we? Don't we? William Hendrickson amusingly remarked, he said, it is a certain thing that a person will love himself. And it is also certain that he will do so in spite of the fact that the self he loves has many faults. So the idea is not that you really need to take some time. You need, to, you need to take some time to really learn how to love you so that you can start loving your neighbor. That's not a product of the Bible, beloved. That's a product of pop psychology. I defy you to show me that in Scripture because you can't. It's not there. Instead, the gospel doctrine that is consistently found in the scripture is that you can't really love your neighbor until you have come to experience the redeeming love of God in Christ. So loving your neighbor as yourself is not about navel gazing and learning to love yourself. Instead, as one who has received the love of God in Christ, You are to express that love to others with the same intensity with which you naturally seek your own good. So here's what that means. If we're Christians and we think about those who are yet in their sins in the world, when we think about those that are under the wrath of God, what's the greatest love that we could show to them? What is it? What is the greatest love that we can show to someone who's lost in this world? Christ. It's to share the gospel of Christ, is it not? It's to share the truth of the gospel. It is, to, it is to speak to them of their desperate need for forgiveness in Christ, to plainly speak gospel truth to them and call them to repent of their sins and trust in Christ as Savior and as Lord. The highest good for everyone, for every person, is that he or she would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and receive the forgiveness of sins and be delivered from the wrath to come, right? Now, I want you to hear me when I say this. That does not preclude other acts of love. I remember when we were living in Pensacola. Never forget this. There were these guys that were known for preaching at the stoplights. Okay? Now, I'm not saying, you know, there's, there's not proper options, opportunities to, to preach publicly. It depends on how you do it, though, right? There were these guys that were famous for preaching at the stoplights in Pensacola. I forget what church they were from, but they were led by a strange leader. I'll just put it like that. And they would stand up on these boxes. And they would literally shout at people when their cars were, were stopped at the red light. They would be like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like that. I mean, they did that to us. And I was looking for my sidearm, you know. And they would stand up there and they would, and they would, they would just, I mean, indiscriminately act as judge, jury, and executioner of every single person they saw. And I knew one of those guys personally. And he was like, man, you ought to come do that with us. And I said, well, I'm willing to preach in public, but not with you. And he's like, why? Well, what's wrong with you? You know, I said, well, I'll tell you what's wrong with me. What's wrong with this whole thing? I have yet to see you ever speak the truth in love. I have not seen a broken heart for people who are lost. I have not seen this desire for somebody else to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ over someone who's a Christian even in sin to come to repentance so that they might be, you know, restored to the Lord. I don't, I'm not seeing that from you guys. In fact, here's what he said to me one time. He's like, man, I was, I, I was on fire Saturday. I had these people, they were driving by. They didn't want to hear anything I said. And I was just like, throwing it. I just was throwing it in on them as they were going by. And I thought to myself, how is that in any way like Jesus Christ? Hey, think about it. When he dealt with a woman at the well, right? Been married several times. The guy she was with was not her husband. He wasn't like, you profligate whore. That's not how he approached her. He approached her with the offer of living water. So what I'm saying to you is this. It is the most important thing in the world. The greatest act of love that we can show is to preach the gospel, faithfully proclaim the gospel to people who need to hear it. But that doesn't negate the need for acts of love along the way. Right? Good and kind and generous and gracious acts of love are often the way that God opens the door for the gospel to be received in saving power. Are you hearing me? In loving our neighbor, look, we do him or her good and we fulfill the heart of the law. Like Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If we're in Christ... We need to be people of love. We need to lay our lives down for people without any expectation to return. 
If you love only those who love you, what have you done, Jesus said. Right? Right? So let me just offer some closing thoughts as we leave this text this morning. Paul has made clear that as Christians, right, the overarching, the essential measure of our lives as it regards our interaction, our relationship with other people is that of love. Our lives lives are be, to be defined by love. Beloved, you and I, we're a congregation of debtors. We owe a debt of love to all people, not because they've given us anything, but because Christ has graciously given us everything. And he has loved us with a sincere and a selfless and a sacrificial and a serving love. And we're to love other people in the same way that he loves us, with the same intensity and purposeful action with which we love ourselves. But here's the thing. We can, only, we can only love in this way when the abundance of God's love for us floods our souls. Isn't that true? Our, our entire life, beloved, is built on the love that the triune God has for his people. Isn't it? Think about it, right? John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Think about what Paul says earlier in Romans. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or what he says in his famous words in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? Father, Son, and Spirit, triune God, loves us with an everlasting love. And it's only as we believe that, it's only as we are certain of that, it's only that as we are animated by that love and we are secure in that love, that we can take no thought for ourselves, that we can deny ourselves, that we can die to ourselves daily, that we can, you know, not seek to preserve ourselves, but instead to pour ourselves out to love other people as we are commanded to do. If you're not certain God loves you, if you're not certain you're in the hands of God, if you are not certain that the triune God loves you with an everlasting love, you will never be secure enough to lay your own life down for other people. You just won't do it. We're secure in the hands of God. And that's why we can love other people. I think this, one of the reasons I think that so many professing Christians fail to love other people as they should is because they are not convinced and secure in God's love for them. I'm really convinced of that. I think one of the reasons that we, that, that we fail to love other people like we should is because we're just not convinced and secure of God's love for us. And it might be for a variety of reasons, right? It may be that, you know, well, it's, it's just a holdover from the way that I grew up. I was on this performance treadmill. I was never sure anybody really loved me. It may be, you know, because of past hurts that make us self-protective. It may be, you know, just an uncertainty that God could actually love a sinner like me. Does he really know how bad I am? Perhaps it's an understanding of grace in the abstract but a failure to appropriate grace personally, right? There's a number of reasons. But beloved, if we're going to love other people like we should, we've got to be convinced that God really does love us. 
And that there's nothing that we can do to lose that love. That we're valuable to him. And that conviction that God really loves us, let me tell you how you're going to get that. You're not going to get any way but from simple faith in the word of God. Taking it to heart. You remember the end of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, those are not just nice words or sweet sentiment. That's facts. It's the truth. Some will say when you hear, you know, a sermon like this, well, I'd like to love like that, but I just, I'm not feeling it, man. I just don't feel it. I'll say three things to that. First, if that's you, Paul commands us to examine yourselves, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that the Lord Jesus, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I'm just going to plainly say this, and I mean this, you know, in all kindness. But if you're not growing in love, if you're just not feeling it, it may be that you're not in Christ. You may be religious, but you may not be in Christ. And that's not an unloving statement. And you know why? Because to say, if the evidence is lacking for, for you that you're in Christ, is an encouragement to repent of your sin and come to Christ, right? But let's say then you are in Christ. Let's say you're convinced, you're certain you're in Jesus. Then I would say to you, second, repent of the coldness of your heart and ask the Lord to give you a heart like his own. Do you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to change people's hearts? Do you? Well, I'm not sure. You know, mine's a special case. Really? Because the Holy Spirit, He's the power that raised Christ from the dead. He's the one that gives life to dead hearts. He's the one who transforms what is wretched into what is good. And I'm fairly certain that if he's got the power to raise Christ from the dead, he's got the power to change your heart and your feelings, your emotions. Don't just give yourself a pass. Be like, well, I just, I'm not feeling it. I'm just going to give myself a pass here because, you know, life. No, no, you don't get to do that. And then last, I would say to you this. The good news for you, if you're not feeling it, that love is not primarily a matter of feeling, but of action. Right? We established that earlier, didn't we? Didn't we? Yes or no? Okay, wake up. So what do you do? You do what makes for love and the feelings will follow. Well, examine the Word of God, right? 
Heed the commandments and the one another's, at least in Scripture, right? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another. Comfort one another. Instruct one another. Bear one another's burdens. Speak the truth with one another. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And on and on it goes, right? That's the practical expressions of love. That's how love's made manifest. Act in these ways and your affections will follow. Well, what if they don't? If they don't, then I would say to you, it's because your heart is yet unregenerate. And you may be religious, but you're not in Christ. This is serious business. We can't give ourselves a pass. And one of the most clearly distinctive evidences of being in Christ, that of love. Love for the Lord God, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang the law and the prophets. All of us need to grow in love. So how do we do it? Two things. This is for Christians. Number one, walk in the Spirit by letting the Word dwell richly in your heart. Walk in the Spirit by letting the Word dwell richly in your heart and in your soul, right? I say that because if you compare Ephesians with Colossians, those two things are synonymous. The Word dwelling richly in your heart, in your soul, and and walking in the Spirit. In fact, the first fruit of the Spirit is love, right? So walk in the Spirit and fill your mind and your soul with the Word of God. And then second, examine yourself by Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Examine your relationships and, 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 and compare them to Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. I'll read it again because it can't be read enough. Listen to these words. Love is patient and kind. Are you? Love does not envy or boast, do you? It's not arrogant or rude, are you? It does not insist on its own way, do you? It's not irritable or resentful, are you? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Beloved, all of us need to think and meditate seriously and deeply on these words, what they really mean, the scope that they have in our lives, myself included. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we need to bring our lives into conformity more and more to the biblical definition of love. And last, I want to just speak to those that are here this morning that are not in Christ. You know what? You've never come to know the love of God in in the Lord Jesus. You've never repented of your sin and you've never trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord. You've never cried out to Him to save you and you've never entrusted yourself to Him, your entire life to Him, not in sincerity. And you might be hearing this and you might be thinking, you know, this love that, that I'm talking about this morning, like, It's foreign to you, but you can kind of see the beauty of it. You can see the worthiness of it. Like, it would be great if everybody was like this, but it's beyond you. 
And it's beyond you because you've never experienced the love of God in truth. That's why it's beyond you. You've heard John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. You know it, but you don't know it. People in this world are always asking, where is the love of God? Look at our world. You see everything. Where is the love of God? Don't blame God for what's going on in our world. Read Genesis 3 and blame the right person. Us. But people want to know, where is the love of God? Well, it's found right here. It's found in God so loving the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's found right here. And I love you enough to tell you the truth this morning. I love you enough to tell you the truth about God and about you and about Christ. You've grown up in a world now that teaches you that you're a cosmic accident. You're just a uh, chance production of evolutionary processes throughout time, which is a total lie. That there's no, there's not really a God that, you know, if you just give a pile of stuff enough time and enough chances that it'll turn into something. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Well, it was special back then. Oh, okay. No, let me, let me tell you the truth, okay? God's created everything that there is. Everything that you see, God made. He made you. He made you for his glory. He made you to obey his commands and so display his glory in this world. He created you and he has the right to command you. But here's the truth about every single one of us in this room. From birth, we have been enemies with God. From birth, we have been opposed to God. Now, some people will say, no, I've known God my whole life. And the answer to that is, no, you haven't. You've known a God of your imagination your whole life, but you haven't known the God of Scripture your whole life because Scripture is very clear that you can't know the God of Scripture for your entire life because nobody knows God in an unregenerate state. All of us are born lost. We are all born in enmity with God. We're born as sinners. And you know what? We give demonstration to that the entirety of our lives. We break God's law repeatedly. We ignore His glory. We reject His sovereignty. We reject His mastery as God. That's what sinful human beings do. That's the hallmark of our lives. And in our rebellion against God, which is no small thing, like we we treat sin as if it's nothing big. Sin is huge, and I'll tell you why. Because sin is committed against an infinitely holy God. And a sin, no matter how small it may be, committed against an infinitely holy God is an infinite offense that deserves infinite punishment. And all of us, as a result, are born under the wrath of God. And if we die in our condition, we will go to hell where we will pay to the full in eternity the penalty of our sins against the holy God. Now, here's the deal. When we sinned in the Garden of Eden, when we sinned in Adam and Eve, and when we've demonstrated our sinfulness all along in our lives... Again, if you have children, you didn't teach them how to lie. You didn't teach them how to become angry. You didn't teach them how to punch their sibling. They just learned how to do it on their own. It's because of sin. 
God could have left us in that. He could have been like, you know what? I made you. I made you upright. I gave you a law that wasn't hard to follow. You've earned this condemnation. It's yours. I'm done. And he would have been absolutely just to do so. But God did something that we could not obligate him to do. And that is this. He expressed his love towards us in action. God demonstrated his love for us by sending his Holy Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into this world in order to be the substitute for sinners, to live a life that covers up the life you lived. A life that is perfect in every way. A life that is sinless. A life that was fully obedient to God the Father in every single aspect. He lived a life of absolute, utter, perfect righteousness. And that made him the only fitting substitute to save sinners. Because he is sinless. Because he is the divine, the God-man. Because he is absolutely righteous in every way. When Christ gave himself up to be crucified on the cross by the hands of evil men. Because he is spotless, sinless, and pure. The son of the living God. He could take upon himself, upon his shoulders, upon his head our sins and the guilt of our sins against Almighty God. And He alone could stand in our place and suffer for us the wrath of God against every sin that we have ever committed, past, present, or future. He alone could receive in His body, in His soul on the cross, the fullness of God's fury against sin and sinners. And actually make a payment for our sin. And turn the wrath of God away. And then he died. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And he rose on, a thir- on the third day. And he ascended into heaven. Where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Waiting for the day when he returns to judge the living and the dead. And in the meantime, the gospel call goes out into this world. Repent of your sin. Repent of your selfishness. Repent of your rejection of God. Repent of your willful disobedience. And believe that Jesus lived the life in your place that you could never live. And he died the death that you deserved in order to make atonement for your sins. To give you his own righteousness and to make you a child of God. And the only way that you can receive the good news of the gospel is by repenting and believing. Repenting and believing. That's how you're saved. It's not by doing a bunch of things and shining up your dirty life. And saying to God, look, God, how good I am. No, the first point of connection between you and the holy God is your wickedness. That he's answered in his grace. So if you're here this morning 
and you have never really come to the place of believing in Christ, or you believed in a flippant and sort of unreal way, so that your life doesn't really give any evidence of being in Christ. Don't try to save. Don't try to save your reputation and lose your soul. Come to Christ this morning. Come and cry out to him to save you. Come and believe upon the only one who can save sinners and does so forever. And then experience a transformed life that's marked by love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray you'd search our hearts right now. And I pray that these words that we've heard, Father God, they would penetrate us and, Father, that we would have a real response. A real response. Lord, I pray that we more than just a mental affirmation, but rather it'd be a soul-felt response to the truth in whatever way that we need to. Father, you alone know with certainty the hearts of everyone in this room. You know the hearts of everyone in this room better than we know our own hearts. And so I'm praying, Father God, that you will search us and that, Father God, you would do in us and you would you know, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight right now. I pray these words will not go in one ear and out the other, but, Father, that they would be words that will stick and change and transform and sanctify and save. We love you. We praise you and give you thanks for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.